Creativity may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think of research. Some may even deem these as two disparate things. One scientific, logical, and systematic, and the other imaginative, artistic, and emotive. But research involves discovery and enables us to solve problems in more effective and innovative ways. Creative meets research in the marketing and branding space of let's workshop your ideas with somebody. Let's not like test, pass, fail. Let's work it with the people that you're really building it for and try to build on it rather than slash it or cut it down. So yeah, I think it's a mix of giving them the info they need and also giving them room to be themselves and use their skill set to do what they do best. Today on The Optimal Path, we're discussing the transformative power of research within marketing teams. We'll uncover how integrating research into marketing fuels creativity, generates more impactful and lasting user and brand connections, and how all this can drive better business outcomes. I'm Ash Oliver, and this is The Optimal Path, a podcast about user research and product decision-making brought to you by Maze. In this podcast, you'll hear from research, design, and product leaders about the ideas informing decision-making across all aspects of product development. Our guest is Marcus Branford, a researcher at Figma who uses research to power marketing decisions. His career began on the agency side at Known, a marketing strategy firm where he ran custom studies for Google, Microsoft, Intel, and Viacom, among others. After leaving the field to pursue his MBA from UC Berkeley, he joined Figma in 2022 as a dedicated researcher for the marketing function. Marcus now works with the brand, growth, editorial, and product marketing teams to introduce the market perspective into the creative process, helping teams to build with their audience in mind. I'm super excited to have you on, Marcus. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm very excited. I've listened to a bunch of these episodes, so it's cool to be here. Oh, well, I'm touched by that. <laughs> this is actually a topic I've been really looking forward to discuss with you, and it's something that I think is really underrated, and that's the topic of bringing research to marketing teams. Yes. You have a very unique vantage point given both your background and your position at Figma, so I'd love to have you maybe start by explaining the importance of research in the field of marketing and maybe specifically the work that you do at Figma. Yes, definitely. So when I think of where kind of marketing fits and what marketing means, I think a lot about how a company positions itself kind of related to the rest of the world and the rest of the companies that are out there. So it's how you're seen, how you're perceived, how people get to know about you. And it's about introducing yourself to people who've never heard of you before. So when I think about research in that space, there's a lot of ambiguity in human perceptions and where people fit and how you are perceived relative to everything else out there. So anything that can give you a little bit of signal, a little bit of a clue into what the right move might be or changes you can make, I find really, really helpful and really valuable. And the people I've worked with have found the same. So research with marketing is very similar to research in product or design or in many other spaces where it just helps you get a better peek into what else is happening and what's going on in people's minds and help you just make informed decisions. I love that. And I think most people would be familiar with maybe the field of market research when we compare this to product research, for example, I'm sure there are methods in which the research on both sides might differ. 
But what parallels can you draw between the two specifically? Or are there any methods that's used on the marketing side that may differ from the product research end? Yeah. One thing that I think is important to say and I hope is seen and understood out there is that marketing and product research are really, really similar. And I think there could be perceptions that because like the product development process might feel different than, you know, a marketing team or a marketing agency making something. A lot of what the research is there for and what the impact it has is doing similar things. And so in terms of methods and approaches, I'd say like 90% of what I do and the way I approach a problem is the same as the way a product researcher would. So, you know, in terms of methodology, there's a lot of one-on-one interviews and focus groups, diary studies, surveys. Those things are all really common. I think one big difference that I've seen is a lot of my work in marketing research is extending beyond people in our product universe. So we're looking outside to people who've never used, in my case now, who've never used Figma yet. And so what is the way we can talk about ourselves? What is the way we can position ourselves to really appeal to people who this is a brand new space for? And that feels different than product research because I know a lot of the focus is current users and making their experience better and kind of really focusing on being inside the product. Marketing feels like it's a little more about storytelling to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think it's hugely important inside of marketing, as you've kind of described, in terms of being able to market and introduce yourself to the types of audiences you're trying to reach. Maybe you could expand a little bit on like the importance of the research done in the field of marketing and how that might contribute to the success of the campaigns and strategies run within. Definitely. I think for marketing teams, I could focus for maybe specifically on someone like a branding team or an editorial team. A lot of what they're doing is content creation for an audience. And so what, what becomes really important is really understanding that audience deeply. And I think for a place like Figma, a lot of that is happening naturally. It's like a lot of the company is really tapped into the design community and what people are thinking and kind of what's in the culture today. And so the team is naturally very good at making things for them. But I think in general, it's about helping these teams understand kind of what this audience thinks about, what they care about, how they engage and find content. And so they can build the right things to appeal to them. And I, I like to think about it as like giving gifts to people. Like whenever I give a great Christmas gift or birthday gift, mostly comes from knowing that person really well and thinking about the little things or things that maybe they haven't even thought of. And I think research and marketing is really similar and product too. It's understanding a person or an audience really well allows you to give them something that is meaningful and helpful and makes a difference. I love that analogy. Yeah, that's definitely something that resonates and I think could be a, like a good North Star instead of marketing teams, especially to perpetuate that desire to get to know the audience and their customers and potential markets, yeah. you know, more, more deeply. Can you explain a little bit about the approach? Because you made mention of, you know, Figma, most especially you know, the entirety of the company being really tapped into the design industry and the players in the space and kind of really intimately being clued into that community. How would you say you could maybe advocate or inspire that type of culture if perhaps you work inside of a company that maybe doesn't have that much understanding of the customer, especially in the you know various departments? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think at Figma, I think it's sort of built from 
the early days around how the company came to the products it did. It was a lot of kind of co-collaborating with customers from the ground up. So it's part of the DNA. I think we're also very lucky to have an audience that is really online and mm. uses Twitter and, and engages with our company and representatives through Twitter and other social media and all sorts of places. So we're lucky in that sense that there's sort of those avenues built and the social side and even within the product side and the way that communication goes back and forth. For companies mm. who don't have that as much, I think it's about establishing new lines of communication if they're not happening on social, which is kind of a rare thing. So I think as simple as setting up frequent or consistent research sessions of we've done something at Figma where we have teams that schedule interviews weekly. They have people, representatives come in and they hear from their community. It's not necessarily for a specific study or for a specific issue or product, but it's let's have, you know, a standing time once a week, twice a week, where we're going to have a new customer recruited where we can talk to them about whatever is, is coming up on our minds or on their minds or just to open a line of communication. So just creating the space to talk to people regularly makes a big difference, I think, and takes it out of being really laser focused on a specific study or issue and more broadly about just opening that line of communication. If it's not happening naturally, then creating that space so they can talk to you regularly and just learn about what's on their mind and how things are progressing. Yeah, I think that's really important, whether it's been reinforced through habits and kind of cultural factors inside of the company from the beginning or whether that's, you know, something that the company is trying to transform and kind of head more in that direction. I think the important thing I wanted to underscore of what you said is making that more of kind of a natural habit instead of always tying it to some sort of specific study or endeavor. It just, you know, kind of helps build that continuous learning mindset across the company and doesn't necessarily have to gate it to a particular research endeavor, for example. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think creating those programs within Figma, there's a specific program for it. And I think that helps keep the momentum there and keep those channels open. It's hard to say like a culture should change or principles should change, but it's much simpler and it feels more actionable to just create space to interview people, you know, once a week, twice a week. That feels very possible and I think would make a big difference for teams just to stay on the pulse a little more. Yeah. And certainly I think on the minds of a lot of teams, especially now, just considering the competitive landscape that we work in and the increasing competitive nature of the industry, I think that teams that invest in keeping these lines of communication open and really deeply understanding their users or potential users are much more set up for success than those that don't. But one could assume that given Maze's position as well. <laughs> I'm wondering what's a maybe notable story of some of the research endeavors that have yielded maybe some of your most significant insights, if you could share maybe an example story from Figma. Yeah, definitely. There's two that come to mind, and I bring up two because one is a little more generative and one is a little more evaluative. I think it's important to talk about both of those in the context of marketing because I think they do very different things and they're perceived in different ways, potentially, by marketing teams. And so on the more generative side, uh, I did a study relatively recently around Figma fandom. And so understanding what are the main drivers of the features or elements about Figma's products and brands that turn regular users into big fans of the brand or the company or the products. And so really distilling down into specific drivers, what those things are, what they mean, 
which audiences they really apply to. And that's been really helpful kind of across the board for marketing because it distills and kind of pulls apart the different elements of what people really like about the brand. So it makes it easy for the marketing team to speak to one of those or two of those or three of those at a time in a way that sparks a lot of ideas. It can inform brand campaigns. It can inform what blog posts to write and just kind of sets us up to give us the content to speak to for appealing to new people. Because the core idea was if we talk to people who like really get the brand and understand the product and are there, then maybe we can get some clues as to how to pull more people into that space. So that was one. I'm happy to, to speak about that more if interesting, but yeah, I wanted to share that one first. I love this exercise. I'm curious just a little bit about how you tactically divided this work. Was this something that you kind of spearheaded and championed from the beginning? Is this something that you know permeated it and was collaborated outside of the marketing team? Yeah, it started actually from a request from our brand team, a brand strategist came to me and said that they were thinking about some new campaigns of, you know, we want to rethink how we talk about ourselves. We're a new, a different company. We're evolving. We're speaking to new audiences now and we want to get a better sense of, you know, how we can speak to the great things about Figma in a genuine way and in a way that feels like it's relevant to both our core audience and the people we want to speak to. So that's kind of where it came from. And so the idea was not mine, but I set it up with an unmoderated study so we could talk to a lot of people and just framed, I think it was maybe even three or four different questions around the moment they became fans with Figma. It was around how Figma impacts their work, how Figma impacts the way they work with other people. And so by dimensionalizing their fandom into a couple different categories, for them, their kind of history, also how they relate to other people and their work, some things could fall out that were consistent trends across people. And so as I went through the study, I started to realize there was more there than I originally thought. It felt really powerful and spoke to kind of across the brand and across the company and product. So it kind of gathered momentum as the report came together. And then at the end, it ended up being the kind of foundational piece for different marketing teams, whether it's sales or brand or editorial or PMM to kind of reference and think of new ideas as they were coming up with their campaigns or working in their individual work. I really love this example. I'm not surprised to hear about this in the context of Figma. I love how this has just such a trickle out effect into so many other teams. And this is you know, why I said at the top of the interview that I think it's super underrated, this level of research. I think research maybe isn't even done to the extent of which it should be in general, but then even in looking inside of marketing teams. I don't think it's often that we see this kind of centralized research endeavors happening, but it makes such a big difference in so many areas of the business. Do you feel that there's maybe some underlying challenges that are presenting obstacles and that's why this isn't happening? Or is it just not as well understood as to the potential upside of doing this kind of thing? What are your thoughts on that? I think the biggest challenge for this type of work that feels like it spans teams and spaces is that it hits the classic issue of being kind of relevant to everyone, but not really actionable or relevant to any one team. So I could see the argument of a team seeing this like this is, you know, 70, 80 percent of the way there. But what do I do next? Like, what is the decision I have to make for my role, my context, my job? And that is real. And I, I really empathize with that because I felt it in any time there's a broad readout across teams, different teams are really looking for different things. And so with this, 
I'm a little newer to working across marketing teams in this way within one company. And so a lesson I learned early was that it's really helpful to meet with teams one at a time and personalize or kind of bolt on the extra 15, 20% of the context for different teams. So for the fandom example, when meeting with the editorial and content and social teams, one fun exercise was looking at things that we've posted online, whether in our blog or on social and seeing which percentage of pieces map to which pieces of fandom or elements of fandom. And so we can see like what we're representing really well online and what's not a spoken to. And it's not saying like you should do this or do that, but it's showing the landscape and what we are kind of gravitating towards naturally and maybe some gaps that might exist. So I think little things like that for something extra context for editorial, extra context for brand, those things can bring it home for specific teams. And then those individual readouts, the discussions can be really focused on their work rather than trying to be everything for everybody at the same time. It also speaks to, you know, just the leveling up of the work that you're doing to take it that extra step. It's kind of a knowing of your audience, both externally as you were running this research endeavor, but then really understanding the context of your audience, even in a broad setting like this, being able to mold it and kind of give it its extra applicability just shows the caliber of the type of researcher you are. I'm curious about the other story that you had, the example. Yeah, it feels different. And I wanted to bring it up because of that. And also really fun. So it was one of the first projects I did when I came to Figma. It was around understanding how our homepage was being perceived or experienced by visitors. Our homepage had been up for years and hadn't been like, really evaluated in the same way that our products are on the research front because there wasn't a researcher staff to that experience. And so it was really treating our homepage, marketing page, like a product in a way of basically a usability study. And we learned some good lessons. We talked to Figma users and non-users and tried to get a sense of what they were experiencing as they went through it. And also people who felt like core designer audiences and then other roles that are really important to us and people that we care about but hadn't originally designed for, thinking of like product managers and developers. So just seeing how these different roles and almost personas were perceiving the site. It was really helpful to see across different roles, just some things about like the length of the site or how messages were landing and gain some like really good feedback that we then use. We just created a new homepage in line with config in June. So the new page is up now and kind of speaks to newer audiences in different contexts. A lot of the kind of foundational learnings we had from that first set inspired what's now up today. So it was nice to see it kind of come full circle recently. Oh, that's so rewarding. Yeah. I love that you brought in both examples as well, because I think another thing that we're going to explore in this conversation is you know research, especially in the context of marketing and its connection to creativity. But before we get there, the two examples I think show, you know, kind of almost like a right brain, left brain kind of approach to different types of studies, but both having significant benefit in terms of brand and brand perception in the market, kind of that competitive differentiation. I see how this ties into lots of different areas of success metrics for the business, but also, you know, just in kind of that brand equity that you're building. So, I'm, you know, when brand is oftentimes difficult to measure, I'm wondering maybe if you can speak to some of the tangible 
ways that someone could try to articulate the measurements of the brand perception or the you know success of, of these types of studies, for example. Yeah, especially I imagine like over time or, you know, are people responding mm-hmm. to what we're building, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think one kind of classic example is a brand tracker study or brand pulse study to better understand. This is probably more common practice in marketing research, maybe less so amongst the product side, but running a kind of annual or biannual or quarterly quick survey on how your brand is being perceived by the audience you really care about. So it's a lot of questions around, yeah, brand perception, what kind of attributes are associated with you, what attributes are associated with considering the company or satisfaction with the product if they're already in and running that regularly as you put campaigns out and put and evolve messaging or change things, you can see if that's having a lift or an impact on the way your brand's being seen by the outside mm. outside world. So that's a pretty common practice and just nice to keep in place. Even if you're not about to launch a big brand study, it's nice to just know where your brand standing is. If something happens and you're worried that things might drop, you have a record of where things were, you know, four, five, six months ago and can see what the impact is. So a good practice and kind of healthy practice for marketing teams to have in place. And it's more of like a a regular pulse on where we stand, more than a kind of deeper dive like that fandom study I was talking about earlier. Yeah, and this relates, I think, a little bit to some of the differences perhaps in like how we see product teams and the product development cycle versus how things maybe work on the marketing side, especially around marketing campaigns and waterfall versus agile. I'm wondering if you could maybe describe a little bit of the differences there, the observations that you've made, and maybe some of the best practices in terms of where teams can lean on, you know, research in a more agile marketing environment. Yeah, I've seen, and I don't know it all, but my understanding of where kind of research in tech and product development came from is kind of rooted in academia and as computer, you know, like engineering practices became more common and basically like scientific method of let's put a hypothesis out, let's test it, let's see how it goes and then iterate and and do it again. Uh, That's really been adopted by the product side of the world because that world is so rooted in kind of that engineering, almost academic roots. And so that like method has gone very far. And I think at least from what I've seen in the marketing side of tech teams is it doesn't have those same roots in that kind of scientific engineering space. And so I haven't seen that essentially like scientific method adopted in the same way on the marketing front. And the way I like to think about it, and you kind of alluded to it, is that this agile versus waterfall approach. And I think in product, being a waterfall, which is essentially doing all of the work up front and building something over a long time, like four months, six months, a year, and then releasing everything at once is not very common anymore because people have realized as they release smaller things and get reactions and iterate and have that scientific kind of approach uh, that they're just more successful. You can batch things up and make pivots along the way and kind of iterate as needed to get to where you want to go. And on the marketing side, that happens, but it's not as common. Like there are a lot of marketing campaigns that people spend a really long time and really big budgets working with agencies. And then they come out with a big splashy commercial or campaign and that doesn't have the same iterative process. 
that products do. And I don't know if that's needed. Like I think a lot of marketing teams could benefit from being more iterative in what they create and how their brand is built. And I think it's tricky because if it's a really big brand campaign, you don't want to, you know, release it to the world and then change your brand a bunch as you go. But I think that there are ways to do it and research really helps unlock that of, you know, you are thinking about some early on territories. Well, that's like, let's test those with people that we really care about and see which one of those territories feels most appealing to them. Or we've built our website, it's halfway done and we built this campaign, it's halfway done. Let's show to some people while it's in progress and, you know, tweak the last 20%. And then once it's done, we can run it by people and see what they think as well. So just a little bit more, put it out there and get feedback and pivot along the way instead of doing all this work. And, you know, the longer you go, the harder it is to turn and change and then releasing it and then finding out what people think is the other older school approach in my mind. Yeah, you bring up such a great point. I think that marketing teams could benefit a lot from adopting a bit more of this a scientific approach. Would you have any other best practices or advice that you would give to marketing teams looking to improve their research practices? Yeah, I think if it's a marketing team looking to improve research in general, if it's a team that's not used to using research, thinking about where your strategy is and where you want to go and what the like big questions and gaps are in that space and if you're not used to working with research, it's not as obvious, but those are the places where if there are researchers around or if you're new to the practice, like those are the things that a lot of times you can just talk to people out there and learn more. So looking at strategy, looking at gaps, and then building hypotheses around those of like, we think this, we have an assumption that this, but let's talk to, it could be as simple as 10 interviews with an audience we care about. And if you have a researcher, then they know how to distill those questions into research plans. And if not, then most marketers are really sociable, smart people, and I think have a lot of the instincts that research requires. And so they are likely well-equipped with a little bit of researching into what the best like approaches are to conduct interviews as well. So I think that's like in general, just approach-wise. Some more tactical things that I keep in mind is marketing can be subjective in nature a lot of the ways, at least like brand perceptions. So instead of just thinking, do people like it or not? There are more dimensions that people can use. And some of that come to mind when testing something is kind of three pieces of dimensions or three dimensions that I think about are, is something relevant to you or not? Like, is this actually useful to your work? Is something unique or differentiated compared to what else is already out there? And then is something, for lack of a better word, like cool to you? Is this like energizing or exciting? And so beyond just saying like, I like this, I don't, you can find out things like, hey, this is really relevant to me, but it's not that different. Or it's really unique, but it's not really relevant to my work. Or it's relevant and unique, but it's not very exciting or not very cool in quotes. And so I think that can help you get a little more context as to how something's being perceived and how you want to react or what you want to go for in your marketing campaign. So really great advice and love the you know kind of mental model in that matrix because I think that might be you know something that could prevent a lot of teams from starting to incorporate more research as, as a marketing team. And as you kind of said, there's a lot of natural instinct there that could be useful, but maybe some of the methodology or practices from research maybe a little less familiar. So this is a really great way of tactically, you know, kind of looking at this good, bad, pass, fail, as, as you mentioned. I want to kind of talk about how this relates to creativity, because I think you have 
some interesting observations and perspective in terms of creativity and research. Again, a thing that I don't think is talked about a lot. So I'd love to hear, you know, how you've seen research build a relationship to creativity and kind of where those two coexist. So this, I think, ties back into those like academic roots. And I think even the word and term and concept of research does not jive well with (laughs) creative thinking in a lot of ways. Like it's hard to mesh those two with the way they're commonly perceived. Like research, you kind of think of homework in some ways or something like that for a lot of people. I know it's not that way, but I think that's how a lot of people see it. And so with creative thinking, I think there's the main belief that research takes away risks, risk-taking or creative thinking or new ideas and kind of boils things down to something that's not that interesting. This goes back to, I think, what you just said in response to what I had said a little bit before about something being like pass-fail of, I think, someone who's in a really creative, generative mindset who's like really putting themselves out there. The idea of having a researcher take that and then say, like, this fails the test is Mm -hmm. a really kind of intimidating or like not appealing approach. And so when working with people who are in like a branding space, I think that there is more to consider there. And I think the biggest thing when working with teams that are more forward and creative thinking is about arming them with the context they need to be creative in that way and to give those gifts that we talked about before of like help them understand the audience so they can use their expertise and their like really special skill set to build something for them. And I think giving them that context in the generative space with something like a fandom study so they know. And then on the other side, when it becomes more evaluative, making sure that it's not about pass-fail, it's about understanding how something is landing in a more nuanced way. I think one fun way to think about the more evaluative side is like I think about stand-up comedians often. And I this in many ways I look up to them for their ability to like look at things that are going on and come up with a framework or a concept to, to point things out to you. I think it's similar to, to research in a lot of ways. But a lot of stand-up comedians, I think most of the most successful ones, they test their stuff out with smaller groups and they run basically focus groups or something similar with their content before like the big show they're in. They do stand up like pop-up shows at the comedy cellar when no one's expecting. And like they have discussions with people, their audience afterwards to see how it went. And I think that there's a similar way of approaching like creative meets research in, in the marketing and branding space of let's workshop your ideas with somebody. Let's not like test, pass, fail. Let's work it with the people that you're really building it for and try to build on it rather than, you know, like slash it or cut it down. So yeah, I think it's a mix of giving them the info they need and also giving them room to be themselves and use their skill set because a researcher is not a brand person and you need to give them that space to do what they do best. Yeah, great points. I think most especially in any of the, you know, kind of generative things that projects that I've been a part of, it reminds me just how much you know, research is kind of the fuel to the creativity and you can oftentimes create much stronger things if there is, you know, kind of that informed insight. But I agree that there's kind of a branding problem of research. <laughs> uh, maybe it comes from, you know, kind of its roots in, in academia as you, as you described. But I think that, yeah, perhaps people feel it's a you know very sterile process and it would be the antithesis to creativity versus what you've described, which is really more of the fuel to it. Yeah, and I think just one more piece on that is I think like a lot of research across the board and work across the board, it comes down to 
the relationship with that team and getting closer with that team. And I think maybe product and brand might feel far if you're more like product researcher or product designer. But those connections with those teams and building that trust is really big because, yeah, like I said, I've watched brand teams create things and it's like a really special process as they're starting to form ideas and you don't want to stagnate that. You want to help power that. So I think that's just a nice thing to keep in mind. Yeah. And it's thinking about teams as well. And Maze most especially has, you know, very big belief on there being benefit to the strength of the learning culture across the company, right? Like yeah. not one single person owns that responsibility. There might be a differentiation and where that research is, how that research is being conducted and for what pursuits, but learning takes place across all aspects of the company. But I'm curious, you know, for teams that may not have a dedicated researcher like yourself inside of the marketing team, kind of crossing the chasm across these different roles, is there a natural place where this maybe could be born from inside maybe some of the more traditional roles in marketing? Or do you think really it could come from anywhere? Yeah, I think it could come from anywhere in terms of running more formal research and like conducting that space. It's tricky because researchers, you know, they have the training and the context. And I think that's really important. But I think one of the biggest benefits to a researcher's role and the value they can give is they have the space and time to conduct research and think really deeply without the same pressure to produce in the same way that produce something that's outward facing, like a product marketer or a brand person. It's kind of adding on top of their jobs to ask them to do like full research practices. And so a lot mm. of times I think there are people throughout companies and across companies who have the pieces to be really great researchers and do really great research, but they may not have the time for it. And so I think one thing that could be really helpful for someone like a product marketer is if they don't have a researcher staff or even no researchers at the company, then working with their team or their manager or the kind of group around them to carve out space to do a research project because it's very much, I think, could be part of that role and what could be really beneficial for that role, but they just might not have the time to do it. So I think that like proposing research projects as additive and con constructive and not like they're distracting from other things would be mm. really important for people who don't have dedicated researchers there because it's sort of the foundation of the decisions that you make, which is the most important piece. So I would say it shouldn't be diminished and seen as a distraction from other work, but really like a founding piece or foundation to other work. So it could be prioritized in that same way. Yeah, I love that. And I think that speaks to the kind of age-old objection to research in general is that it's potentially seen as this time-intensive thing that's an investment up front and that it could be a distraction from the other work. But in actuality, there's so much benefit to be gained from the research that investment pays dividends. Yeah, just one more piece on that point is I had a fun, like, yeah, really interesting experience going to business school, which I had years of experience as a researcher and then went to business school, which was, I think, a little bit non-traditional and just in that. And I didn't know that many other researchers in business school, so I hadn't met any. And I went to all sorts of innovation, like workshops and boot camps and product management classes in many different contexts, in many different ways, like the, the theme that went throughout all these different spaces in business school was 
talk to customers. <laughs> you need to talk to customers. <laughs> it's the most important thing. That's how you pivot. That's how you innovate. That's how you build something useful. Like everyone needs to be talking to customers. And that was the core of a lot of the, like what they're called applied innovation classes mm. was you have to go out and interview 10 people a week and see what they say and react to their lives. And it was kind of a light bulb moment of this, like a lot of people are encouraging people to do research and whether that's formal as a researcher or informal as, you know, a product person, that is kind of the foundation of the work that's built and making something valuable. So that was really cool to see and kind of inspired my decision to go back to research after school. Oh, I love that. I'm really glad that you shared that story. I do think that certainly a component of a lot of the innovation type discussions, but I think, again, is an aspect that sometimes may be overlooked and hugely important inside yeah, all functions of the business. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm really happy that that through line was there early on for you. <laughs> yeah. This has been incredible. I really love this conversation. Super relevant. I want to transition to our hat trick questions. This is a series of questions that we ask every guest just to get to know them a little bit on the personal side. So my first question for you, Marcus, is what's one thing that you've done in your career that's helped you succeed that you think few other people do? One thing I've done that I think isn't super common, but it might be more than I realize is I just reach out to people and not even in a real like network way of, hey, I, I'm interested in this role or this thing, but in just like I'm a fan of you type person and I want to connect and I just think you're cool or the work you're doing is really interesting and would do it through Twitter for a while of like, hey, I, I'm a beginning graphic designer in high school and I like your music. So here's an album cover that I made for you or I really like the website you made and uh, you're a, like a data visualization person and that's an interesting role to me. So just like, thanks for doing it and thanks for sharing your experience. And I think just doing that builds connections and confidence and you don't know where things will go or how things will come around or where people's paths cross and just mm. tying yourself and connecting to people you look up to in a like, just pure person to person way. I think it's been really valuable for me in like tangible and intangible ways, but it's something that I've done and try to keep doing as I find more people I look up to. I love that advice. That's great. I have you know personal stories of that same thing and the wild ways of the universe <laughs> and how things connect. So exactly. yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> My next question is, what is the industry-related, and you can use industry-related quite broadly here, what's the industry-related book that you've given or recommended the most and why? The book, I would say, I haven't actually recommended it many times because I only finished it a few months ago, but I'm going to be recommending it a lot. Uh, it's called The Dream Machine by Mitchell mm. Waldrup. I think it's pronounced that way. It's about basically the history of personal computing from like early World War II defense efforts in the 40s through to Xerox Park and the research lab that basically invented the internet and like modern personal computing in the 80s and just goes through that full timeline in detail and covers all of it. And it's so impressive and inspiring just thinking about the history and the real intentional decisions that were made by these people who changed the world in so many ways and like helped me understand how the tech I'm using works on a really foundational level. And also just gives really interesting lessons on like work culture and experimentation and being cross-functional uh, and the importance of that as you're like in new spaces, building new things. That's really cool. I'm definitely going to check that out. I'm super fascinated by that. And also I think that 
is very timely in the sense of you know, all of the technological advancements that we are living through. Yes. It's yes. a reminder that those were also big technical advancements of their time. So I think that's a really great recommendation. I'll be checking that out. Yeah. Very dense, but very good. <laughs> I'm not afraid of a dense book. Okay, yeah. good, good. <laughs> My last question for you is, what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? I think my unusual habit is I have a very deep love for shoes, which I think like on the surface is not that unusual. There's a lot of people who love shoes, but I think my, <laughs> it's not like I, I don't really buy like that interesting of shoes. I don't have that many shoes, but at the firm I, when I was really young, I was just really fascinated by sneakers and this like performance thing that has trade-offs and materials and design and like fashion and function. And as I've gotten older, I think it's just a really fun, like, cultural token in a way of, like, everyone wears them every day. And whether it's an attempt to or not, there's sort of a statement in it of, you know, I care about this or I don't. Or, you know, it's there's always decisions involved, which is a fun thing to consider. <laughs> and so when I'm with my wife or my friends or whoever, whoever's around, I can always, like, ID a shoe that they point out or just know more than they expect, which I think they think is absurd. But it's just been a, an interest and sort of feels like almost birding in a way. It's like there's that thing or that one's rare or that one's less common and just sort of a fun thing to keep in mind. I love this. And this is <laughs> one of my favorite questions to ask for this reason <laughs> entirely because it's always so intriguing to hear what people will say about themselves. I, this could be a really fun like, you know, web project or a book in and of itself yeah. if you ever decide to pursue such a thing. <laughs> yeah, really identifying someone based on their shoes and the statement that makes is really cool. <laughs> yeah, no good or bad, just different decisions. And yeah, this is a great batch of questions, really fun and the quirky. Quirky is always good. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your observations, your time and space, some of your thoughts on the topic. I think it's, as I said, something that should be deserving a lot more discussion in this space. And I think this is super valuable. So I appreciate you being on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I love the discussion and excited to listen to more of these episodes as they go. So thanks again. Happy to be here. Thanks for listening to The Optimal Path, brought to you by Maze, the continuous product discovery platform designed for product teams. If you like what you heard today, you can find resources and companion links in the show notes. If you want to hear more or subscribe to the podcast newsletter for exclusive content, you can find The Optimal Path by visiting maze.co forward slash podcast. And send us a note with any thoughts or feedback to podcast at maze.design. And until next time.